when people get scared, it's, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. I, I love it. It's very exciting to me. And then when they laugh, I just, that, that makes me the happiest when, when they laugh. And that's why we will always have a little bit of comedy in whatever film we do. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Born and raised by intellectual parents in Buenos Aires, Barbara Muschietti developed a passion for art, literature and movies at an early age. Living under the thumb of the brutal military dictatorship that ruled Argentina in the 70s and 80s also made her passionate about politics. She took her strong belief in human rights and the transformative power of art into the world of cinema, becoming half of one of the most successful brother-sister teams in movies. As the producer of films directed by her younger brother Andy, she's brought to the screen the stylish supernatural ghost story Mama and two of the highest-grossing horror films ever made, It and It Chapter 2. Barbara spoke with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Zienga in 2018 and 2020. This podcast combines those two interviews. You and your brother have a unique creative partnership. How were the two of you brought up? We grew up in a house with a lot of books. We had long summers in which we were not allowed to watch television, but... As a bartering tool, we could pick any book we wanted. There were no restrictions on what we could read or not. So very young, what started with the typical stories of the Grimm brothers became not enough. We went straight into the real Grimm brothers stories, which were incredibly dark. And this was fascinating to us. And that evolved to Greek mythology, the most fantastic, horrific tales. It was just magic. From there, I went to Edgar Allan Poe and immediately to the ones that were even closer to us because of the geography. And those were Horacio Quiroga, who's an amazing short story writer, Uruguayan, then Roberto Arlt. There was Borges, of course, Cortázar, and all the rest of, you know, Latin American literature, which always has a dark hint. Even if it's just a little line, it's, it's, it's always there. So we grew up with these books, and we started writing short stories inspired 
by these books. And it was, of course, a lot more entertaining than anything that could be going on at the present time than in, in, in my country. So it was a great way of, of escaping. When you were a little girl, Argentina was governed by a right-wing military dictatorship. What kind of impact did that have on you? Well, we, we grew up in a very troubled country. Uh, from 76 to 83, we had the military junta, basically as, as government. And there were a lot of things, terrible things happening. An estimated 30,000 people disappeared. A lot of them very young, a lot of them kids that just had ideals, political ideals, right? And that this was not allowed. And we were tiny. I was in 76, I was four years old. We did not grow up in a politicized home. Our parents, my mom is, is French. My dad was born in Argentina, but of European parents. So there was never, we were a, like a particular unit. We were Argentinians, but we were kind of in a cocoon. That said, you know, you're a kid, you're in the street, you go to school and you sense it. And, and it's there. And, and of course, when in 83, the government was made to step down suddenly at 11 years old, you find out what has been going on. And you start suddenly going out in the world and meeting kids whose parents were killed by the military. And, and that changes a lot of, of things of how you see the world and how safe you believed you were when you were not. Does working in genre films give you a way of dealing metaphorically with some of the trauma and anger you may carry with you from those days? Yes. I mean, it's it allows you to escape and to be able to control your fears. And that was, to me, always growing up, what horror films were. I could go to them, get really scared, and no, that's a movie. I go to bed and I'm fine. There was no real danger. It's escapism. That's what it is, when the real danger was just down the block. It and your first feature, Mama, are both very emotional films, like heightened emotions that you wouldn't have in a naturalistic movie. Are you drawn to those kind of big, expressive stories? Well, I have no real interest in telling stories that don't have that <laughs> heightened emotion content. No, that's the kind of movies that I love to watch, hence that's the kind of movie that I love to make, um, to feel. And it's not just to feel in a jump scare, because that's, you know, that's not that hard and that lasts two seconds and you'll kick a chair or something and then that goes away. I, I like you incorporate an emotion and you take it with you. And if I go back in my history as a film watcher, all, all the films that I love, both in genre and not in genre, are always films that have heightened my emotions. What was the first movie, or specifically the first scary movie, that really made an impression on you? And this, you'll get a very similar answer from my brother because, you know, again, we saw all these uh, films together. Our parents used to take us to the drive-in quite often because it was 
easy to, you know, they didn't need a babysitter. They could just put us in the car and we'd go watch a film. So we watched a lot of films at the drive-in, which was for us. I mean, I still feel the emotion, you know, my heart beating when we would get close. And it, it was the entry to the, to the drive-in wasn't paved. And, you know, the car would jump. And I just remember, you know, the line of cars driving in and just the emotion of of getting there and then my dad picking a spot and putting you know the big chunk metallic speaker um and of course i mean i'd, I'd love to go back just to see the shit quality of what it was you know the sound and the image but it was the most amazing thing every time and one particular film the first one i remember that blew our minds away was Close Encounters. Of course, Close Encounters, if you watch it, I think I was four and a half, five when I saw it in the in, in at the drive-in. That's a very scary film because there's, you know, the little child gets taken away and that that is, for a kid, the most terrifying thing that could happen to you. So that stays, although it wasn't a traditional horror movie that stays in my mind still, it's, it's a terror-infused experience. How were you introduced to horror movies, and what were some of the films that you saw and enjoyed? Our connection to horror. We started watching horror when we were very little. There was a TV show, Saturday Nights, in Argentina called Viaje a lo Inesperado, which means Trip to the Unexpected. And it was hosted by an old Spanish actor that had done a lot of horror, who had moved to Argentina because he had married an Argentinian woman. His name was Narciso Ibáñez Menta, and he would introduce horror films on Saturday night. And it was religious for my brother, I, and our parents, who enjoyed the experience with us. So I saw... Uh, the Abominable Dr. Fives. The sequel was The Return of Dr. Fives, right? Dr. Fives rises again. Rises again, yeah. You know, there was a mishmash. There wasn't a particular theme. It just had to be horror. We saw The Hand, all of Dario Argento's small films, and this was fascinating. And we could tell, well, I could tell, you know, there were ones that I, I liked a little more, ones that I didn't like that much. But the adrenaline that they provoked in me as a little girl was just the best feeling ever. And I don't know why, but I think as a protective measure, was able to stop that fear once I turned off the television. So I didn't carry it with me. It was a safe high. I would have a high during the film and then I'd go off and do whatever I wanted. And if I wanted another high, I'd have to wait until next Saturday because there wasn't VHS or streaming services. But it was a fantastic experience. Mama is a ghost story. And your executive producer in that film, Guillermo del Toro, believes in ghosts and has said that that's a given where he's from uh, in Mexico. Is that also a part of Argentinian culture? Well, although we have so many similarities, Mexico is a very different culture. Argentines are more like 
we have a big chunk of the city called Freud City because that's where we all get analyzed. That's where all the psychologists work and we all go as little kids to go talk to our shrinks. So it's a, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little the, the ghosts tend to be a little more internal. Um, but that said, I grew up in a home where my mom was full on agnostic, but my dad, does believe in ghosts and that was always there and I believe in ghosts it's a choice I don't think that comes from the culture you know the, the national culture I could have you know soaked or not it it is a choice in most ghost movies for reasons both technical and economic you don't see the ghosts but in Mama, at first you see little flashes of ghosts, and by the end you see the whole thing pretty clearly. And it's a very terrifying creature. It looks like it was created using uh, a lot of different methods, uh, combining practical effects and CG to give it that look. We wanted to see Mama as little as possible. This was a conscious decision. The one thing, Guillermo was the most fantastic mentor, great. He was with Pacific Rim, crazy busy. But the one thing when we went and show him the first cut, first thing he said is, I want to see more Mama, because he loves monsters. We love monsters, but we like to hide them a little more. So there was this back and, and forth. The middle one, thank God. But um, I remember this discussion we had with, with Guillermo, you know, in the first encounter where Mama attacks the father of, of the girls, uh, which we didn't want to see at all. We wanted to hear it. And, you know, he looks at it and he's like, no, 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 we, we have to, you know, we have to see at least 10 of her. Um, and I go, 10 frames? And he goes, 10 seconds. I'm like, we can't see her for 10 seconds. You know, it's like, 10 seconds, you can see absolutely everything of the ghost. You don't want to do that. And he's like, of course we have to see 10 seconds. It's actually 15. You know? <laughs> so we ended up, you know, middle ground and, you know, darkening the, the, the scene. But um, yeah, Guillermo loves to see his monsters in every frame if, if possible. We are more on the hiding uh, side of things. It takes a good while because at the beginning it's like, what the hell was that? <laughs> good. <laughs> but back now to the question of, of the techniques. We got the most hilarious emails and, you know, just trolling and all, all the rest after Mama came out saying, that's really bad CG. It wasn't CG. It was always Javier Botet, ladies and gentlemen. It was just 100%. Uh, we did use some enhancement in the hair. Um, the, the skin was makeup, basically. The body was 100% his. And the same with It, Chapter 1. Again, it will repeat on It, Chapter 2. CG only when you absolutely need it. Because A, it takes it out of the hands of the creator, of the director, in the case Andy. And Andy likes to, you know, control as much <laughs> as possible of his vision. And B, because... I like practical. I don't know. I feel more comfortable with practical. 
And I imagine it's easier for the actors, too. Uh, people have come in here talking about how difficult it is to act against green tennis balls. Oh, for months. For months, you know. Today, tennis ball is Benedict Cumberbatch, you know. And today, it's Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> I mean, for actors, it's, it's hard. Uh, is it particularly effective to have children as the protagonists in your horror films? Andy and I... Still, neither of us have kids, and we've had very harsh criticism from parents going, how can you do that? And we're like, well, for now, you know, maybe eventually we'll have kids and we won't do these things. But um, I believe that, of course, when you're a kid is when you're at the, the height of vulnerability and also at the height of belief. The ability of a lot of our creatures to exist and appear and manifest happen because the protagonists are kids. I don't know, Mama would not have come in the rescue of this little girl. She wanted to be a mama. She needed those kids. And with it, well, it's, it's a little bit of, of the same. I mean, in King's uh, book, Pennywise may very well be a creation of the kids and he stays alive by the power of their imagination. They believe that he exists. So how could we tell these stories without kids? That's the question. The story of it revolves around childhood trauma and the repression of trauma and coming to terms with the experiences that scarred you in childhood. Yeah, you cannot escape. I mean, repressing doesn't work doesn't work. Deal with the stuff. If you don't deal with it, it's going to come back 27 years later, maybe, but it will come back. Everything comes back. And if it doesn't, you, you die a miserable person. So in chapter two, indeed, Pennywise comes back 27 years later, and the adults have to reach out to tools they had as kids to defeat this creature. So all comes full circle, basically. If you strip away the supernatural elements of it, you basically have a movie about child abuse and racism and all the other social ills it deals with. Well, I mean, Pennywise is a manifestation of evil, just a way to, you know, it's, it's a tool that King used to explain what was going on and a tool that allowed him to sell this book to millions of people and not, you know, read the paper that that day. But but he wrote it because of what had just happened in in Bangor, which was the the death in the hands of bullies of of a young man. Right. So we're living it right now. You know, it is it's what happens when a society lives in fear. Right now we have the help of the government and the media who choose to remind us every second that our lives are in peril because of who we are, because of what we believe, because of who we desire. We can't escape it, you know, unless you decide. I mean, all all the medicine right now, all, all the integrative solutions are get away from your cell phone, go meditate, you know, go back to nature, which is basically, in a nutshell, telling you 
stop absorbing all the bullshit that you are, you know, be that on TV and radio in the supermarket, uh, just stop, calm down. You're not in danger right now. Breathe. It's, it's, it's okay. Of course, in horror, you're always seeing people in danger. Yes. <laughs> but there's always a solution, you know, and that's why Andy and I went to the first showing of it at the Arclight. I think it was, it wasn't the first showing, it was the first night, but it was, I think, the second showing started, show started at 10 something, and the movie theater was packed. It was a Thursday. For the first time, we watched with a real audience, not a test audience, and not the premiere audience, a real paying audience. And mid-film, I turn around, and it was just after, you know, the kids go through hell, and and I turn around, and people are like, looking at the screen, the arc light, it's this massive screen, so all the audience was eliminated, and they were smiling. There was wonder, and we waited until the end and then we we saw the the public leave no one knew who, who we were you know just we were just audience and people were smiling at the end of of this film why because yes it's horror but we try and i think we tried with mama as well and we try with it to pack a little bit of hope in the film so you can take that away with you and know that in spite of everything that's happening in the world. <laughs> There's still beautiful friendships and, and that growing up will bring some bad and some good things, but that, you know, it's still worth living and that you're not alone. What kind of need do you think ghost stories fill for people? I mean, you've mentioned repression as part of it, but there's this idea of unresolved business. I think it is it is resolution. I think... I'll give you an, an example. It's, um, I, when I was 38, I lost a dear friend who I had known since I was three years old, and she was 38 too. She left, she, she got sick. She was sick for four months and left. She was not okay with leaving. There was no resolution there. She had a four-year-old kid, an adorable little girl, and she was angry. The girl was furious, and my friend was also pissed. And we talked about it. She she was the most esoteric person I knew. You know, when she passed, you know, my first thought was, she'll come back. There's too many unresolved issues for her not not to come back. I don't know it in what form or when. I'm sure it will be benign because there was absence of of malice in her. She was pure good. I'm I'm sure she'll come back. There's too many things uh, that were left without answers. Of course, nobody knows for sure what's on the other side of the curtain. Do we really want to know? I mean, it's what can we do about it? We can't do a thing uh, about it, really. So, you know, it's all a process of the human brain trying to give structure or story to things we can't control. Neuroscientists would agree with that. It's your brain receives random inputs and then constructs a narrative out of it. 
Including the little, sto- including the story that I just told you. I mean, that I need to believe that she's going to come back because we didn't talk about <laughs> so many things. And, you know, she wanted to talk and I wanted to talk. So, you know, I believe she'll come back. Tell me a little about Stephen King. Stephen King, we started uh, reading King very early on. Again, with, uh, the same philosophy was applied. Don't watch TV, but read anything you want. So we started reading King very early on. Pet Cemetery was first. Seminal book, just uh, so fantastic. And then, of course, when I read many years later on writing, uh, in which he tells you how personal pet cemetery was for him and, and and to him that changed everything again and I had to reread the book but pet cemetery was just such a strong impression and I'm I'm heartbroken that Andy and I are not doing that in film actually but I'll well should let everybody know but um we read it I think we, we read it in the same summer I, w- I must have been 15 and it cracked my skull open, literally, because it was the first time out of everything I had read that the protagonists were so close to my age. And the peril that these kids were facing seemed so real. And they were active against this peril. These were not passive children, which is what I had been reading through my life. And and this, of course, was a world of possibility and ambition as well, because suddenly I realized, you know, even as a little kid, I can fight and I can do whatever I want. That, that was my feeling. It's that uh, King told me, you can do whatever you want. And I did. <laughs> what qualities in King's work did you most want to capture in it? Human emotion. You know, the the rest is, is the story, you know, and he has the most vivid imagination and she and he takes you, you know, to the strangest places. But the anchor is always the human emotion. Uh, without that, it's not King. It's, it's another author. And in that same way, I think one day somebody can say that about our films. What we want to convey is humanity. The rest, the scares, the beauty, you know, the, the, the argument, the story itself is, is one more element. But, um, no, human emotion. Does it grapple with any contemporary social and political anxieties? I think part of the success of the film was the fact that we are all attacked in, in one way or the other right now, the current political situation because we're women or because of our orientation, because of where we were born, because of our religion, social status, or you can go on and on and on. And, you know, suddenly feeling the magic of knowing that you're a loser and you have your 
group of people that are in that same place, even if they're completely different from you, but they are in that same space and that there's hope because you are strong in numbers and you can fight. It couldn't be more of a tale for today. here again with the fabulous Barbara Machete. So, hi, Barbara. Hello, Coach. Um, so, let's talk a little about it. Chapter 2. Mm -hmm. Did making the uh, second one present challenges that you didn't have to face with the first one? What was unique about this experience? Making the second one was definitely challenging. Um, the, the obvious challenge is the expectations. Andy and I are pretty good at ignoring that noise. Um, I think it's because we're two people and uh, we rely on the other person carrying the burden, uh, which turns out in no one carrying that burden <laughs> because we're both expecting the other one to carry it. It was a much bigger film. It was more ambitious. We were telling the story of 14 characters this time, basically. It's uh, seven people been in two very different places of, of their lives. And then we were working with these amazing kids that had all become superstars. <laughs> and although spirit-wise they're the same, they really are, um, getting them together was hell because they were all working in high-profile projects all around the world. And then we had our adults who are all very talented, hardworking actors. So our schedule was um, a complex one. It was like lace. There was a lot of flying in and out of, of Toronto. Story-wise, you know, we had our amazing Bible, which is the book. And we tried to, as we did in the first chapter, to stay as close as, as possible to it. And we had the support of King, which is always a blessing, and it only amplifies whatever you're doing. And we were lucky to have the support of the studio. Since chapter one worked, they they trusted us with the second. No, Andy, I think the last time I talked to him, he's, he was talking about having King do his cameo, I think, as the in the role that Peter Bogdanovich wound up doing, right? Yeah, I think we find we found roles, the perfect roles for for both of them. We always wanted King to do a cameo. And when Andy asked him, he said, careful because I'm jinx. I'm a jinx. You know, the, the films I'm in don't do very well. And Andy told him, I think, well, this one will be fine. And it, it did fine, thank God. But um, King was just so perfect to be the owner of the store. And when Bogdanovich, we are friends with Bogdanovich, and we were having dinner one day, and he asked Andy casually, well, if you have a little role for an old director. And 
the light bulb went out and he said, of course I do. So um, it worked out perfectly. And both Peter and Stephen were just glorious to work with. And both playing into the same running joke about the endings of the books being lousy. (laughs) Yes, and I think that's very honorable of uh, of Mr. King. I thought I th- I thought that was uh, lovely that he would support that. Actually, how did the adult actors and the child actors did they work with each other to sort of calibrate those performances? The adult actors came in with quite a challenge because Chapter One had so much love from the public. Everybody was in love with these child characters that they knew that they were coming in with something that had already started. We tried an exercise that we actually put into practice of having them connect. So it started very casually having a lunch with everybody together and then sending off each couple on their own for 15 minutes to kind of, you know, warm it up. We had the kids sit down. I had them sit down and write a letter in character to their adult. So they would express what their childhood was like, and they gave them a a picture of themselves as, as children as well. The actors loved this, and they, they really, really worked on these letters and understanding what their young characters were saying. And then, of course, there was the spontaneous part and the fun part of having everybody together. You know, we run a pretty loving set, so there's always opportunity to get to know that person as as a character, but also as as a friend. And that helps. Bill Hader said that uh, Finn Wolfhard specifically requested him. (laughs) (laughs) I will demand Bill Hader. (laughs) It's it's true. He very early on, um, he said, Bill Hader, I'm not sure that Finn could see him as the older Richie. I think he just really wanted to work with Bill Hader. <laughs> so that was his opportunity. And then, of course, it worked perfectly. Bill's role, of course, is um, in some ways the, the biggest diversion from the book, but it's an evolution from the themes of the book, right? Could you tell me a little about that and why it was important for the character of Richie to be what he was in the film? When we faced each character, the one that we felt was the more mysterious one, as in what could affect him, what could be his secret, what could be his cross, was Richie. Because in the first movie, we go through everybody's lives and everybody has a particular trauma. But we don't really get into Richie. Richie's scare is clowns. We needed to go deeper. And as we started thinking about it, Andy suddenly realized that we needed a counterbalance with the horror of Adrian Mellon and that there wouldn't be a better one than that being the secret 
that Richie was keeping, which is that he is gay. We presented it to Stephen King. He liked it. He actually said, yeah, but if he was gay, would he really fall for Eddie? <laughs> that was his question <laughs> for the boy with asthma. That, <laughs> that's what he said. And we said, yes, yes, I think that bond has been established. And, you know, when we see it in chapter one, it's not necessarily romantic love. It's, it's just that love between, you know, two friends that is so deep. And then, of course, it develops into something else that we don't see because it happens between the films. But we saw it as a very logical fear that Richie could have. Richie and his life uh, in, in the book is this over-the-top radio DJ that lives in Hollywood and has all this supposed girls, but he's never had a real relationship. And we really understood how that could be the issue that he's closeted. And the film opens with the homophobic attack on Adrian Mellon. So why was it important to open it that way? Well, because it's still happening because it's something that needs to be addressed. And it's also a big part of why King wrote the book. There was a real case of something very similar happening in Bangor, which is Bangor was in the book fictionalized. The city was called Derry. And the reason why he called it Derry was because he didn't want to further traumatize the people of Bangor by what had happened, which apparently had really made an indentation in, in the town. People had a lot of trouble because everybody knew the bullies, and the bullies were, you know, the sons of good people. But then our actions are the ones that scream and say what kind of people we are, not our reputations. I had quite a tough time when the film came out and I started reading this division of people understanding, some people understanding that the way we wanted to portray it and the reason why we did it was because it is something that is still happening and it needs attention. Well, there was another sector that viewed it as uh, as exploitative. I don't see it as exploitation at all. I just think it's pointing a finger at something that still happens. I think the argument was that you were using a real-life horror in a movie alongside supernatural horror, and that that somehow diminishes the real-life horror. But I assume you did it for the exact opposite reasons, which is that you're trying to lure people to the film with the supernatural elements and then confronting it with genuine real-life horror. Yeah. And 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 that's what both it movies are. It's 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 about people living in fear and what the, the horrible things we do as as human beings. It, you know, Bob Gray, Pennywise is the representation of fear, it is what I fear the most, actually, which is fear. <laughs> That's why we make 
movies. We want people to to see these movies and and try to understand that that's the worst thing we can do, live in fear. I think it's also interesting that you start with that incident, and then we meet all the grown-up characters, and Bill's character, Richie, is immediately the most likable and charming. And he seems to be there for comic relief, but then he turns out to have the most emotional storyline in the film. So did you deliberately engineer it that way to confront the way people often dehumanize gay people? Absolutely. It is trying to get past the dehumanization, but it's also that Bill Hader is one of the most charming human beings there ever was. <laughs> and he gave and he gave that to Richie, but he's also like that in, in real life. So that's that's on him. That's on him. So how are the members of the Losers Club different as adults? They're 27 years older, and for 27 years, they've been carrying a lot of weight. Part of the mythology of, of it is that the memories are wiped. So they don't remember Pennywise. They don't remember Derry. They don't remember the trauma. Uh, Bill Dembro practically doesn't remember that his brother, his little brother, died in the hands of, of Pennywise. But they carry it. They carry this inside. And this does not allow people, any of them, to grow. They're stunted. They don't have children. None of them have children. They are all successful, but there's something inside that's not finished that they've been carrying. So when we meet them as kids in chapter one, there is an innocence to them and the absolute belief that they can defeat this monster with the power of togetherness and uh, with the power of belief. They believe that they can defeat it. They've lost this. So when we see them back 27 years later, they are terrified. They come in and as soon as they start remembering, they feel defeat to the point that Stan can't even make it there. He has to kill himself before because he, he knows he's not going to make it. So they're, they're all, I think if, if I were to use one word to define what they are 27 years later is they're branded. They're branded by fear. So it takes all they have, which is a lot of courage, and the life of Eddie to defeat Pennywise. And as a story about trauma mm -hmm. and PTSD, how does how does the it chapter two work? It's a hundred percent a story of trauma and PTSD. They've wiped it out. They've covered it with everything else, repeating their mistakes, you know, attaching themselves to parts of the past they don't even remember. So Eddie marries his mom, basically. Beverly marries a man that is not far from her dad, because that's what, what she knows. Bill can't finish a story <laughs> because his, his life story was so undone and he was never able to give it closure, his, his little brother disappearing. 
So all all these characters live in trauma. That said, when they get Mike's call, they show up because there's still that little spark, that oath that left something inside of them that was so valuable that they had to go back and find it again. Is Pennywise different in the second film? Yes, Pennywise is smarter in the the second film. He's more evil and he has a a bone to pick. And he's afraid. It's the first time that Pennywise is afraid of these guys. So he's going to come back with a vengeance. He's never been defeated like he was on chapter one when the kids, through power of belief, defeated him. And he's going to make sure that they don't kill him. So he comes back with revenge in in his mind. And because Pennywise is Pennywise, he toys with them emotionally as as much as, as possible. Is Pennywise a supernatural manifestation of kind of cruelty you see in often small towns? Yes, absolutely. Pennywise is a manifestation of, of cruelty and fear. And a lot of times cruelty comes as a result of fear. I believe when people fear something and are disconnected from that being, from the humanity or, you know, the fact that they are different from them, then it's it's very easy to put enough distance that you can be cruel and you don't care because, and, and that's what cruelty is. Cruelty comes in when we have absolutely no understanding of, of the other part, when we don't understand that they are human and they have feelings and they are just like us. So yes, that, that is Pennywise very much. When we were gearing to do chapter two, Andy asked uh, Mr. King, what are the things that you'd love to have in the movie, that you want to see in the movie? And he wrote a few things, and one of them was Paul Bunyan. He He wanted to make sure that we had Paul Bunyan. Having this terrifying monument or statue come alive and not only coming alive, but telling Richie that he knew his his secret. That's Andy's twisted brain, actually, (laughs) to have Paul Bunyan call him on his secret. Uh, But I think it works. And that explosion of hands oh. come out. That's very cool. Yes. That that was Andy a hundred percent also. I you know, my brother, I will say I've known him for a solid forty-six years and I'm still in awe of the bizarre things that will pop out of his head. And they do every day, but I applaud them <laughs> and I make them happen. <laughs> No, in that case, when he comes to you, he's putting this together and he says, Look, I've got some great monster effects, or I want to do this, or something like that. How does that work between you? What's the process? So basically, we we try to decipher, because a, a lot of times, like, we were talking about 
De Palma trying to explain to his crew how the shot of the blood bucket was going to work. Sometimes Andy comes out with an idea and in his head it's crystal clear because Andy's ideas, 99% are, but they are very clear to him. So now we have to dissect them so that everybody understands them. We have a great crew, so I will first get it from Andy and then we'll get together with VFX, prosthetics, special effects, and try to see what is the best way. And most times it's a combination. We we barely ever do anything that's straight VFX. In this case, we had, I think, five people in the drain. We had built the drain and we had five people as hands, so 10 hands that would go up James's uh, arm. And then in visual effects, we added the little hands. So it's, you know, it's, and that's what's the fun part. It's the fun part of inventing how we're going to do this. And, and it's pretty good at it. But some of the other monsters in the film that do you think really worked or made um, an effect on you? Well, we have, um, let's see, Mike scare we cut it's gonna be in the super cut hopefully we we still people are constantly asking us about the super cut which are the two films together yeah because mike's is kind of noticeably missing in yes a way. Yeah. mike's was a very cerebral scare and all that information had already been given and we needed to get the movie to two hours 45 <laughs> And poor Mike had to lose his his fear. Although part of it is in in the trailer, which is when Pennywise shoots off the wall. Um, it will be in the super. Will be in the super cut. The big climax. Ask Bill a little about basically what, because I said you know I know Andy usually likes to work at least as many practicals in as he can. Yeah. But he said, well, a lot of it was actually Andy holding a big Pennywise head screaming at us. <laughs> is it, this true? It, this is 100% true. This is 100% true. Andy, we had a big, a big Pennywise head. I can show you then in the, we can give you the crew picture, which is amazing because we have the big Pennywise head and it was on a pole and Andy would parade with that hat, chasing the losers around the cavern. Um, so it was quite artisanal in, in that sense. Andy likes to be the one that's directing their, you know, the, their movements all the time. And uh, well, because he's the director, obviously, but he's more involved than a lot of <laughs> directors. Is also, I think he has so much fun doing this, and the, and he's a kid, so he loves grabbing that pole and running behind uh, behind the losers. In this case, we did have a massive support from VFX, so we shot the cavern with the losers running around being chased by Pennywise. And then we shot Bill in a suit and the dots. Um, the motion to, capture suit. Yes, yeah. the motion capture suit. And he did that whole sequence in the motion capture suit in, in a studio being shot by 
I don't know, I think it's a hut. It's a setup of like 50 cameras or something like that. And that's how we got the big clown spider. That's what we call it, the clown spider. Which is in the book, it's a big spider at the end, although it's not a clown spider, right? So you had to keep enough of Pennywise in it for people to know what it was. And also we wanted, because neither Andy nor I are scared of spiders. So that was one part, the only part of a book, I think, that we never really connected with from childhood because we're not afraid of spiders. So a big spider didn't, wasn't, the conclusion of a story. So we we needed to bring Pennywise's aspect to, to it. And I think we succeeded. I love the clown spider. I just think it's a wonderful creature. I, I actually do think it works better than just the spider. Just remember reading the book and just like, <laughs> oh, you, it's Kurt. a big spider. Great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I read that thousand page book to a big spider. It's a spider. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like watching the film with an audience? Of course, you probably saw it with a bunch of, I don't know how many test screenings you did of it, too. So that must change your perception we, of it. We did. We saw it with a test audience, I believe, 11 weeks after we finished the shoot. And, you know, we have 10, 10 weeks to do the director's cut. And then right away, we are requested to test the film. On chapter one, we didn't really understand the system because on Mama, we never tested Mama was such a, you know, small investment for Universal that I think we were never asked to test. And also Guillermo was involved, so they felt safe. But with Chapter One, immediately after the director, Scott, we're like, okay, we're testing. And we're like, what do you mean we're testing? We didn't even know the process. And um, I was very reticent in the beginning but then I understood that it can be positive. You have to know what to weed out of those tests and what to keep. Because obviously you're sharing the film with an audience when the film is definitely not ready. You know, the director's cut 10 weeks is nothing. The nuance of what it is to edit a movie of this size, that is very little. And of course, there's no visual effects. There's no proper sound. There's no proper music. It's all a pastiche. So you really have to be brave (laughs) and kind of hone into the core of what's being said, not the, you know, there's noise. There's a lot of noise and everybody wants to be heard. We're in L.A. So you get, you know, the people, the audiences we get to for the test screening are all, even if they're not supposed to, they're all film students or you know, writers that want to go to a free movie. <laughs> you know, it's people that somehow have something. So you, you will get a lot of test screenings in which you have an audience member lift their hand and say, well, you know, I think the third act uh, is lagging. Yeah, <laughs> a little. You're like, yeah. They offer so. their services to punch up the <laughs> script for you. Thank you for that. Next, please. (laughs) But I have to say that when you're getting closer and closer and you start hearing the scares, people, when people get scared, it's it's a wonderful feeling. I, I love it. It's very exciting to me. And then when they laugh, 
I just that that makes me the happiest when when they laugh, and that's why we will always have a little bit of comedy in whatever film we do, even if it's a drama. There has to be some some lightness that comes with it. I know you said you hadn't seen Carrie in an age, but do, would you still like to talk about just seeing it and the impression it made on you? Well, I'll never forget it. <laughs> um, I think Carrie was probably, what year was Carrie? 1976. And for sure, Carrie was the first elevated genre film I saw. And... Um, when I say elevated genre, I wouldn't even define it as that. It's a great, it's it's a great movie. It's it's filmmaking at at its its core. And I suffered for Carrie. I was a little girl, <laughs> but I suffered for Carrie. And the amazing thing that De Palma does um, that he did for me is that. I understood Carrie so well, and I understood her anger. And what would I have done had I had powers like that? Probably the same. You know, it's uh, the, in, the the injustice of everything. You know, and and there's the character of Amy Irving trying to be nice and solve things in spite of being so popular. But I was never able to be in her shoes. I was always Carrie. <laughs> So I'll never forget it. And I remember seeing it and thinking, how did he do this? How did he do this? And, in, in, you know, in the prom scene, the first shot, the bucket shot, I really didn't understand how he had done it. And I remember leaving the cinema thinking about this. And years later, when I watched the De Palma documentary, and he explains how... When he came up with the shot, he had a, a difficult time explaining to the crew how they were going to achieve the shot because they weren't understanding it. I felt that justice, <laughs> that I wasn't alone. Uh, so if the crew didn't understand it, it was fine for a little girl not to understand it. But it's something that stayed in my in my brain for forever. And it's funny because... Then there were a lot of John Hughes movies that were the sweet version <laughs> of Carrie in a way, like, you know, 16 Candles or but the the original one for me, the underdog, will always be Carrie. And that was the divine Barbara Machete. Join us next time for Tom Savini. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Ogmavoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. 
Executive Producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior Producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror and Cut. Thank you.